Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, Hello. and welcome to the Hopcast, episode number 114. You remember every week. I do. I had to look it up, to be fair. <laughs> My name is Adrian Hobart. My name's Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Suspense. Mysteries. Crime. And the other one. Thrillers. Thrillers. That's it. Uh, you got it. Thank you for helping me out there. Welcome to the show. And uh, this week we are speaking to different guests to the one we advertised last week. Uh there's a there's a good reason for that. Yeah, so the guest we um, told you we were going to have had an illness in the family, so couldn't make it. And um, it's actually very timely. So we had two guests yes, who published their book just two weeks ago. They did, and they are Bryn Thompson and Steve Lowndes. And we've been working with them on their book, Transformational Selling. It's a business book. It's brilliant. And uh, you edited it. Yeah. Uh, I've done the narration for it. And they had uh, double book launches, one in Mayfair in London and the other in Cheshire just this week. And we thought we'd invite them on, talk about the process, how it's long it's taken them to get from idea in a Dallas bar <laughs> to publication. And uh, I think there's a lot to be got from it from that point of view but mm. most of it actually is about the business i mean they work in business to business business selling which is different to what we do which is business, business to, to customer. customer to a degree yeah i mean you know we we are working in a sort of business to business situation when we work with them but there is so much to be got from this interview so we look forward to speaking to Bryn and steve a little bit later let's get into some news shall we yes um, so the first piece of news I found is about somebody who we've had on the podcast, the lovely Kate Moss, who's a very well-known writer. And she is also responsible for the Woman's Prize for Fiction. And I think that's sort of, you know, her pride and joy. And um, last month it was in the news that she um, is starting the Woman's Prize for Nonfiction as well to go with it, which I think is brilliant. Because I'm a non-fiction writer. If I'm going to write a book, it's probably going to be non-fiction. So I think it's good to give uh, more opportunities for people who write non-fiction to enter these things. Um, and she's going to be appearing at the London Book Fair, which is, is it May? I think it's June this year. June it certainly this was year. last year, yeah. And it, it moved from April to June, partly to give themselves a little bit more breathing space with COVID, I think. All right, okay. So she's going to be appearing to talk about that, um, which is great. Let um, me, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll check up the, the exact details and uh, and I'll, I'll bring those to you in a moment. Okay, so I can talk a little bit more about this prize because it's... Mm, please. So the trust who um, Kate works with on the prize, have, they they say that the Women's Prize for Nonfiction will further amplify female voices while celebrating books that inform, challenge, disrupt, I love that word, and offer solace and connection. Um, so that's the Charlotte Aitken Trust. 
Excellent. They give a prize of £30,000 for the winners. That's the prize money, which is fantastic, isn't it? Can you imagine winning that? It'd be happy days. Well, look, I tell you what, we got it completely wrong. London Book Fair is the 18th to 20th of April. Oh. It's round the corner. It's, it's, less month. Month. it's less than a month away. Yeah, just under, yeah. Wow. Um, now, we're taking a decision, executive decision, not to go this year, I think. Yeah. I mean, we we sort of dithered with whether to go just for the day, but we haven't actually put that idea beyond a chat. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, we found it very tough last year. It's not an event where a small publisher, unless you've got some sort of spot, which costs a lot of money just to even have a chair and a, and a half a sort of metre of bookshelf in the IPG stand. I mean, we're talking, you know, good big four figures of just for that privilege somewhere to stick your uh, your bag um yes which we did feel the lack of didn't we we did i mean look we might go for a day because it, you know it is a good place to make some contacts for the podcast point of view from the business point of view there is no point hobeck being there we are now represented on audio and we are busily negotiating a representation elsewhere for mm. other, other aspects of our business because you know it's very clear you get the experts in because we can't do everything but you know we couldn't get into the see the agents because that's a particular part of the fair that's fenced off and surrounded by security and uh in the end i just found it totally overwhelming mm. actually and I, I i i'm beginning to get a real problem with being in crowds now i don't know why i think it might be eyesight issues or just just uh, the fact that we live in such solitude out here in the countryside. But when I was in London this week for book launch number one with Stephen Brin's book, I've just felt terrible. I just couldn't handle the bewildering speed of it all anymore. <laughs> and I lived there for years. So it just, um, it's a very odd Yeah, experience. I think it's both things, actually. I think it's partly that you're not used to it because the bewildering speed of Newport Shropshire <laughs> <laughs> doesn't quite sound right, does it? No. Whereas the bewildering speed of London, yes. And also, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want to depress you, but you are getting a little bit older than yeah, you were I, in your 20s when you were zipping around London being a hotshot well, journalist. That's true. Look, I mean, the fact is I find going to Waitrose in Newport stressful enough. Just, just <laughs> get, negotiating the car park because it's, you know, it's full of mad drivers. But, yeah, um, I don't think London Book Fair necessarily serves a purpose for us this year but not to justify the expense uh, no. certainly of staying in a hotel for three nights it's... no it's a lot of money but you know we could do it in down down and up in a day with uh you know it's possible from here it's possible we can do it because the train service is brilliant so we yeah. can if we want to well we'll discuss it off air well let, yeah let's, <laughs> let's look at what's on offer but, and, and, and decide and so talking to london book fair i have another news item and mm. i haven't actually told you about this one because i've only just found it oh, and... gee, thanks no no but All right. <laughs> <laughs> um so last year at the london book fair we went to a rights day didn't we yes we did yeah and we met a lovely lady there called rachel atkins oh, who yeah. um had re fairly recently set up her micro press, Lemon Quartz Publishing. That's right, yeah. Well, it's in the bookseller. She was in the bookseller this week because she's decided that she can't continue her company because they just hasn't it hasn't been viable. Um, so that's a little bit of sad news because we met Rachel and we talked to her at oh, length, yeah, actually. Yeah. And yeah. I actually wrote to her with my Writers and Artists Yearbook hat on a couple of months ago, suggesting she put the company in the, the yearbook, but... Um, Sadly not. It's not going to happen. It's, it's gutting. It really is. So her company publishes um, sort of mind, body, spirit books. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Very, very. Um, and she yeah. still wants to work in that area. So it looks like she's looking 
um, other publishers to get work in that area. Mm. So oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So I think it's she, you know, she had a good go and it just, it just didn't work. It's no, as we keep saying here, we're not going to fib about it. I mean, it's tough. It's really tough to turn a coin in this business at the moment. Um, and as I say, much more established companies than our own are battling to do so. Uh, and if it weren't for the freelance income that we're making, you know, based on some of the skills that we've developed through Hobeck, mm. we would be, you know, probably in a not dissimilar position at times. Yeah, you know, there have been there have been wobbles over the year. So, and, and, and um, you know, being are. being honest, month by month, we are living often, and it's because we've had a good couple of months, like you say, freelance income coming in. We've managed to put that back into the company. Yes, we're investing everything. I, I mean, everything I've done on these Roman books, which I've talked to you about over the last few weeks, is going back into the company. I'm not seeing that money, my personally. No. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm conscious of that when I'm, you know, I did my fourth chapter just now uh, and practically wrecked my voice. Yet another great big battle scene. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's the nature of it. So let's not let's not. Be no, we, I think we're just we're just we're lucky at the moment. So we're just we do feel for Rachel because we met her and she's yeah. lovely and she had lots of hope and lots of ideas. And, yeah. But it's I'd just be very hard. interested to know how many people from that rights day mm. actually made any progress in the rights situation because, you know, we've reached out to rights agents who could make a difference. And the word that we've got back over the, since that that particular time is that it's a really dead marketplace at the moment. And you really have to be a mega seller on Amazon, proven track record, top 100, that kind of thing to get anywhere near. Uh, a rights deal right now and foreign rights which is unheard of but then there's also been and we've seen this uh announced in the last few months this big retraction where everyone was tv and film rights were you know i wouldn't say flying um 18 months ago or so mm. but that market has completely dried up because the content creators have overcommitted to a lot of productions and they're not getting the subscriber base to sustain it so you know, while there was a glut of new services coming in, Paramount Plus, Disney um, and Apple, on top of Netflix and Amazon, those five platforms were driving a lot of sales of potential projects. And they're all getting shelved and they're withdrawing from that marketplace. And that has a chill. Absolutely. And an impact on people's, you know, I mean, that's a very big part of the agent's incomes. And that's dried up for them too. So no one really is out there sort of saying, you know, snapping your hands off for stuff. No. Um, and that and that is probably We still be... have all our hands. Yes. I think that's going to be a theme of London Book Fair, if I'm honest. But it, I, as I say, I don't think necessarily it's a natural environment for us to operate. And uh, if we did go, it would be with the purpose of reflecting it for the podcast. Yes. And, and therefore having conversations that can benefit Hobeck and Arch Publishing Services. Um potentially but the podcast is is the way that that moves forward yes indeed because that's what what we've got out the london book fair in the past is great interviews and conversations yeah and I'll, yeah things have developed from there but we'll, we'll we will see it's only you know we've got to make a decision in the next week or so no. <laughs> yeah ha- well, they, they keep emailing me saying you haven't bought your ticket yet no so. i know i know i know and it's funny because we were recommending going to the london book fair for all the students at exeter we spoke to which brings us around to another story that you've got um, I think about the 
changes at Penguin Random House in terms of internships. Oh, so yeah, another story I saw was that, um, so I, I'm not sure how many years they've had this summer scheme going, but it's it's quite popular amongst um, young people who want to get into publishing because it offers a, a scheme where you work at Penguin Random House for the summer and, you know, obviously it opens doors or potentially opens doors. Well, they've just decided for the first time that they're going to restrict um, the system to uh, people with a low socioeconomic background. Now, we were talking about this and we were saying, well, how do you decide that? You know, what's the benchmark? And also what's the sort of evidence mm. that you... Because uh, it, we, there's so many sort of levels, isn't there, of your socioeconomic background? It's not just yeah. what your parents <laughs> well, I mean, well, I mean, but okay. Talking personally, my eldest child gets the full student loan for the same reason. Yes, no, Even... no, that's that's true. That's not true. not that my ex husband no, I mean, was a rock what, star, but this is what I'm saying is that you know that for them to be able to judge, you know, where people are on that socioeconomic scale, there will be ways of gaming that system and getting those internships for people who perhaps don't need it. But look, it's 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 another. Well, it's hard to say, really. I mean, look, it's a step in the right direction from one point of view mm. in the sense that, yeah, publishing has a problem, whereas, you know, people who can take internships can afford to do them because mummy and daddy can, you know. Or they've got relatives exactly. they stay with in London, which I, yeah, yeah. Uh, I felt know, that. Yeah, and I think that's that's very true for people in your sort of home counties who can, you know, afford a train ticket in, you know, they can do this sort of thing. But for anyone from a certain distance away with no connections, they can't. Mm. So that should help. But it'll be interesting to see how that works. Uh, we watch that with interest. Okay, um, and the story I wanted to touch on before we get to our interview with Brendan and Steve is, um, let me just uh, dig it out. Um, it was on my, here we are. Now, we talked about <laughs> at some length and with my hackles up, uh, the changes to Roald Dahl books a few weeks ago. You remember that they were, Sensitivity readers had gone in and made 600 changes to Roald Dahl books to uh, make them less offensive for mm -hmm. young minds. And they did the, something similar with Ian Fleming's books, the Bond books. And now you'll never guess who's getting the okay. treatment next. Okay, should I try and guess? Yeah, you will guess. Well, I think it's related to crime, since yes. we are a crime podcast. And I'm going to say the lovely Aunt Agatha. Well, yes, Agatha Christie. <laughs> now, you know, eagle-listening uh, members of our podcast community will remember our visit to Exeter University and on a previous occasion last year where we went to go and look at her correspondence. We did. With her agent, which is kept at a special collection in Exeter University. And it was fascinating because she worried about the minorest details and indeed was very, very strong on making sure that what she wrote was what got published. She was not keen on too many changes. So, subsequently, we are now getting a situation where Harper Collins, who currently publish Agatha Christie's estate and all the plays and the, the myriad books, have put the books through sensitivity re readers again and are making changes. I find this quite surprising, just on what you just said, as in Agatha Christie um, had quite a tight hold on her words. Mm -hmm. So how did they get that um, authorised? Well, presumably the Christie Trust have been involved because they're very litigious. That's what so, I mean, yeah. Well, I, you know, so <laughs> I, I, I watched this with, with bated breath. Anyway, um, 
so this is an article in uh, Daily Telegraph uh, today. This is Sunday we're recording this. Uh, digital versions of new editions seen by the Telegraph include scores of text changes to the books written between 1920 and 1976, stripping them of numerous passages containing descriptions, insults or references to ethnicity, particularly for characters Christie's protagonists encounter outside the UK. The author's own narration, often through the inner monologue of Miss Jane Marple or Hercule, Hercule Poirot, has been altered in many instances. Sections of dialogue uttered by often unsympathetic characters within the mysteries have also been cut. So, here's an example. In 1937, the Poirot novel, Death on the Nile, probably arguably the most famous of all of the books, the character of Miss Allerton, Mrs. Allerton rather, complains that a group of children are pestering her, saying that they come back and stare, and stare, and their eyes are simply disgusting, and so are their noses, and I don't believe I really like children. And this has been stripped back in a new edition to state, they come back and stare and stare, and I don't believe I really like children. I don't see how that's, that's offensive. That's a subtle difference <laughs> Uh, vocabulary has also been altered with the term oriental removed. Uh, other descriptions have been altered in some instances with a black servant originally described as grinning as he understands the need to stay silent about an incident described as neither black nor smiling, but simply nodding. Oh, I grin when I understand the need to be silent. Uh, and in a new edition of the 1964 Miss Marple novel, A Caribbean Mystery, the amateur detectives musing that a West Indian hotel worker smiling at her had such lovely white teeth has been removed with such similar references to beautiful teeth also taken out. Okay, so you get the, well, get, you get the gist of it. <laughs> it just uh, makes me feel tired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's how I feel, really. Just tired of it I feel, now. I, feel, I felt more strongly about the Roald Dahl stuff, if I'm honest. Um, but you know, because, you know, you take away those descriptions. I mean, they're pretty lazy descriptions from... from um, from Agatha Christie, and yes, they are a time capsule reflection of a woman who grew up, uh, you know, born at the turn of the nineteenth century into the twentieth century, mm-hmm. um, from a position of initial privilege with servants and things like that, and then fell on hard times, as we discussed before. Uh, then gave gallant service as a nurse during the First World War, and then discovered her writing talent just after the war uh, and always was very, very concerned about money and her reputation and her legacy. So um, I don't think though that she would have had any, I mean, I don't think culturally there was any problem saying these things at that time. And I think in a sense, Agatha Christie is all about its time and context and, and, uh, you know, society. So changing those things seems odd to me. Well, it's the same as you can you could say any time in history where we've had books, you could say the same thing. It's written at that time for the time and it should be preserved in for that because it's it's culturally interesting to see how people felt and thought and the language they used. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and this sort of um, sensitivity reader airbrushing of things. Yeah. Just yeah, I just, I'm I, just tired of it. <laughs> I yeah, totally. I mean, where does it stop? And why should it why is it started in the first place? is something that you could argue. Anyway, this is not going to be an issue that we're going to face with our next guests. Um, <laughs> Great may, connection there. Yeah, sorry. It was the, the worst <laughs> handbrake turn of a segue I've ever made. But uh, uh, I'm just going to... Um, uh, well, but by way of introduction, so 
let's just explain the, the context. When uh, when you first encountered Bryn and Steve and uh, the manuscript, where it got to yeah. with transformational selling. Okay, so it's about a year ago. I'm uh, registered with a website called Readsy, where um, if you're a freelance editor, you can register. And it's quite a high vetting process. Um, and I registered as a non-fiction academic copy editor and proofreader. And Bryn and Steve um, approached me and a number of other people as well saying we're looking for a, a copy editor for our business book. So I replied and said, oh, OK, I'm, I'm quite interested. I'll do a sample edit for you and let me know what you think. Uh, did the sample edit. They liked it. We had a Zoom call and they chose me. I was very happy at that point. So for the next two months or so, I uh, embarked on the edit of this book. And it had been through a development editor, but I don't know uh, much about that, what happened, what they suggested. Um, but I found this book was a little bit chaotic. There was a structure to it, but um, it wasn't quite gelling yet together. There was a lot in there that they wanted to say, but it, the message just needed to be tightened up a bit and made it a little bit more clear. So that's what I did. And um, at the end of the process, Bryn and Steve said, we want to publish our book, but we haven't got a clue what how we're going to go about this. And I said, well, if you choose to self-publish, let me know because I might be able to help you. And I left it at that. Didn't mm. hear anything for six months. Then they popped up again and they said, we want to publish our book. We want to do it in about four months. <laughs> so I pitched to them what we could do for them between the two of us. You could do the narration of the audio book. I could format the book, design the cover, arrange um, for it to become an e-book available on Amazon, arrange for the printing, however they wanted it, whether they wanted it on Amazon or whether they wanted it wide, you know, available in um, more places. And they said yes, and so we did, and it published last two weeks ago. Yeah, it's been uh, it's quite quite a journey, and it's been a real pleasure to work with Bryn and Steve. So they have seventy years of sales experience, particularly around business to business sales services and things like that, um, which have been fascinating. Weaved within the book, so they have a philosophy: transformational selling, taking selling to a new direction, based on uh, all sorts of new factors which they discuss, but. Uh, at the heart of it are their anecdotes and their stories about their own selling <laughs> experience, which is fascinating. And in the audiobook version, which is coming out soon enough, um, they have narrated their own anecdotes, which has been great. But as you'll hear, they're great storytellers, and it has been a pleasure to work with them. So let's speak to Bryn Thompson and Steve Lowndes. What a great pleasure it is to be speaking to Bryn Thompson and Steve Lowndes. Thanks for joining us, guys. Morning. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And it's been a week for you, hasn't it, really? Because um, you've launched, uh, it's already out available, but you've had your two launches for Transformational Selling, which is your your new book and the product of, of many years of thought and work. So how did that feel, uh, Bryn? Yeah, surreal in a way. I mean, all the time we've spent from when we first planned it, which was about 12 years ago to when we started writing it, which was early in lockdown. Um, we finally got there, to, so to actually physically see that book um, in print and then to have, I think, best part of 100 people come to two launches um, over the last two evenings, it was, it, was, it was great, really, really buzzing. It is, and, and Steve, take us through that thing, because we were talking about 12 years ago. 
when was the spark for this project? When was it? When was that sort of uh, created? Yeah, funny. It, it it all started. Uh, Bryn and I were working away. I think we've been colleagues for about a year or so by that particular point. But I don't think we'd ever worked really together on a project, and we were away um, in Dallas. Uh, over there with a with a client who's busy, and I think we'd we'd got there. It was a Saturday. We're downtown Dallas, and if it, it, it's it's if you go downtown because it's such a business center, focus the place was dead. It was like someone had dropped the bomb, and it was just like literally <laughs> just walking around this city. It was really kind of unnerving, actually. Um, so we stopped, but it was incredibly hot. So we just dived into the first bar that we could find that was actually open, and there weren't many places that were open, and we were just sat in there. We were talking sales and. It just sort of cropped up this idea. Do you know what? We've got so many ideas to share, and, and and I can't remember who said it, but it'll probably be. I'll claim it was me. And I think we should write a book. But anyway, that was where it sort of started, and and I think we had a couple of full starts, and we put some ideas together, and life got in the way. Um, and yeah, it, it sort of sat there as as an idea, and we kept bring coming around to it. You know, we should really write that book. We should get on and write that book. And I think <laughs> 2020, um, we said, right, this is the year we're going to do it. And we we actually physically made a start. We mapped it out again. And we went, right, let's start again. Let's do this. And then, of course, lockdown hit and there was no excuse not to do it. So, yeah, it, it, it was kind of 10 years in that we should get on with this. And then three years in the actually doing it. That's that's fascinating. I mean, Brian, I'm, I'm interested to know who, which of you was leading that process in terms of we should do it was it a mutual thing every time you saw each other and you went yeah I think I I've always had a kind of writer in me and uh, I think everybody says they have a book in them um, but it was always an ambition of mine at some point to write a book but there's a limited number of subjects I could probably write a book on and Steve is really I guess somebody who's got a lot of very creative ideas about um, learning and development. And so actually collaborating with somebody, given the fact that essentially my career has been 40 years, I have to say, in sales, uh, mainly probably the last 30 as a sales director, actually collaborating with somebody who'd got that um theoretical background to add to the practical stuff that we both could bring to the party I think it was really very very much a joint effort really I think Steve said finally let's do something and we actually planned it just before lockdown to be fair Mm -hmm. but lockdown became the catalyst to actually be able to have some time to get on and write it because there wasn't a lot else to do no (laughs) I think lockdown has produced quite a lot of books, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one of the good things, one of the few good things I think that came out of lockdown. What I think is so interesting because I've narrated this this book, so I know it well now. And obviously, <laughs> and I've read it a few times. Well, you have. You've yeah. the answer, and I also really be interviewing you as well, Rebecca, as part of that, that when we got to that point in the process. But what's so interesting is that balance you've struck, guys, between the anecdotal. The stuff mm-hmm. from your careers, which, as you mentioned uh, during the week, it's seventy years of sales experience between <laughs> you. That's yeah. uh, that's that's extraordinary. And um, using those anecdotes and that sort of uh, real world experience, but then matching it with actually coming up with something which is a new way of looking at the sales process. And what we're talking about, in particular, is selling between businesses, business to businesses, mm-hmm. or B two B as it, as it's described. Um, that's not an easy thing to achieve to 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 marry mm-hmm. the two elements, getting you know a clear 
proposition for your reader to go away with some practical things to do, but also making it human. Yeah, Steve, you want to pick that one up? Yeah, I mean, that, that's probably where the sort of strength came in because we both brought slightly different things to that. So Bryn's always been a really, you know, great storyteller. And mm-hmm. yeah, you, well, you'll know this because you really have that. But, you know, whenever, whenever there's something, there's always, you know, there's a story, there's an anecdote, there's, there's something in there that really brings it to life. And storytelling is really, really important. And it's important in sales and it's important in training. It's important in developing people. We know it's, you know, it's the fundamental way that people have, uh, communicated for for thousands of years everything's passed down through stories so what was really nice was just and I think we we kind of settled into a bit of a rhythm where I went well here's the sort of content and some of the theory the ideas and the observations that we made and then you would Brim was mainly adding the stories in and go right well let me let me put these in and so it kind of worked like that so it was more a case of well I'll, I'll put that framework in you write some of the stories, then we'll kind of swap around. Maybe I'll put a foot, couple of mine in as well, and you can put a, your take on some of the theories. But but it seemed to work really nicely, that fit, because we both brought a slightly different element to the way in which the book was written. So Yeah. And, and what I love is you, you, can hear the, you can hear the two voices, and you do have slightly different voices in the book, but they do go well together. And as a reader, it, it flows from one to the other. And I like the fact that it's broken up and then suddenly there's in a box, Bryn. Well, one time I blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And you, as a reader, you think, that's fantastic. That illustrates what was just been in the previous mm. section. And that gives me hope that, you know, about what's what you're saying. So, Yeah, I think it's interesting, actually. One of our beta readers when we started the book is um, Helen Boothby, who was um, at the launch on Thursday night. And H, as she's commonly known, was a colleague of ours for over 10 years. Now, she said something interesting that sort of reflects your point there, Rebecca, which is I can tell when it's Steve talking and I can tell when it's you talking. But I think over time, given the fact that we've edited and edited, we've had a development editor look at it, we've had you look at it from a a proofing and um, an editorial point of view as well, I think in time I've almost forgotten the bits that I've written and Steve's written because it's become much more of a collaboration mm-hmm. but uh, I think the difference is is Steve I always say is like the guy who was classically trained if it was if it was a pianist he'd be like the classically trained at the Royal Academy of Music whereas I was the person who learned how to knock out a tune when I was 15 <laughs> and you know, that's probably the analogy as to the two things we bring to the table. But just to add to that, one thing that I think is really important is between us. I mean, my background pre-training, uh, sales training, was in sales recruitment. And collectively, over those 70 years, oh my word, I would think we must have interviewed, assessed, trained and developed well over 20,000 salespeople. So there were so many things that were in our heads as to what, why is it? Most of those people, that, no disrespect to them, were not as good as, you know, they, they, we would have wanted them to have been, mainly because they hadn't had a lot of formal training. A lot of what came out of the book was what is it that they're doing now and what do they need to do differently to be successful? Yeah, and that's that's really the crux of this, isn't it? Because you quote and you mention certain books that have changed the approach mm-hmm. to selling over the years. And I suppose the last 
big uh, tidal wave of change was the Challenger sale, which was a massive hit and and adopted by a lot of um, companies. And it was a that was a move away from what you describe as transactional selling, which is just get the sale done, you know, get the signature and provide the widget or the, the service and not take it any further than that, really. You know, it's just simply about making your, your quarterly figures and all that sort of behavior. The challenger sale takes it further. But what is it that about your work, Steve, that is taking it even further than that? Because people listening to this will will, will perhaps not understand what it is you're proposing here. Yes, it's great. I mean, I, I guess what we're looking at is, is recognizing that I think um, particularly in B2B sales, but actually you see it across all kinds of sales and all mm. going out there. There's a, there's, there's a change really in, in, in terms of the dynamic between customer and supplier, if you if you want to think about it. And there's a number of things that are changing that dynamic. One of the main things is the fact that, um, and this is increasingly happening across B2B and B2C worlds, is this change of the traditional sort of sales paradigm, which is, well, I give you a product and you give me cash and then we part ways. And if you think about it, you know, 20 years ago, you bought a CD. If you wanted an album, you bought a CD or you, people still buy the vinyl, I suppose. Um, Or you bought a DVD if you wanted to watch a film or whatever. Now you subscribe to Netflix. Now you subscribe to Spotify. Um, And you, you don't... And, and you have access to all the things that you want to have access to until you stop paying that subscription. And suddenly the dynamics change because it's no longer a case you go, well, actually, if you're no longer quite providing me with what I need, I can turn it on, I can turn it off again. I'm not now buying something outright. And software is a, a really classic example of that, particularly in the business world, where people are now subscribing to software Um you know, this laptop we're doing right now is, you know, we, we haven't, you know, we're here on Zoom, but you're paying a subscription to Zoom. You haven't yeah. put a license outright and gone, right, you carry Zoom forever. No, you, you pay a subscription. The day you stop paying that subscription, you stop getting the service. And what's that's changed is, and, and there's a massive dynamic that's suddenly changed there because it says as a salesperson, I can now no longer sell you the shiny item you pay for it, and then we go. But I don't care whether you use it or not. It's up to you. You, you bought the shine, but whether whether it delivers anything or not doesn't really matter so much because now we're only going to make money as a business if what I've sold you you continue to use and it delivers what you needed it to. So as a salesperson, I really have to get under that. Not what's going to make you buy it now, but what's going to make you want to stay with it moving forward. And it's just that change of emphasis around you're buying stuff because there's an ultimate outcome that you want to try and achieve. And as a seller, I've got to really understand what it is. And I've got to change the dynamic in the way that we sell. You know, Bryn talks about this a lot, and we talk about it a lot in the book, that the seller-buyer dynamic has changed massively now. And sellers no longer have to be and shouldn't be subservient to customers because we're entering into a long-term relationship. We should be doing it on an equal footing. So it's about having that mindset and, and changing the language and everything about the way that we sell that says we're coming into this as partners and we're working together to try and achieve a longer term outcome and it's that kind of focus that we really we really try to emphasize throughout the book i'm fascinated i mean because you know you you've been through those different eras of selling over those 40 years (laughs) and some of your anecdotes are about that that previous sort of paradigm where you know just get the thing across the line and uh satisfy your sales manager and all that sort of thing um how difficult has it been to i mean you've been obviously very adaptable but were there sort of moments where you realized 
that things had shifted and that you've had to change your mindset to, to adapt? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've always borne in mind is if I'm working with a customer, I want to work with them for a long period of time. And I have managed to develop long-term client relationships. You uh, may remember um, um, at the um, the London, the, um, Martin Ward was there. Martin's just been appointed the West Midlands Tech Commission. Yes. I first placed Martin in a job in, I think, about 1989 or 90 as a, as a very young pre-sales consultant. And he went on to have a, a stellar career where he became a client over the years, and I still do work with him today. So I think the principle of building those longer-term relationships for mutual benefit has always been something dear to my heart. And Not all salespeople perhaps have that mentality. So that's helped, but for sure, you you know, you constantly have to adapt your way of working in what we term the new world to be relevant. And um, I think the one thing that underpins it all, and and, and I, I came up with a sort of saying that we put in the book, which is don't be a Labrador. <laughs> don't don't just throw let the client constantly throw the slipper. As much as I love Labradors, they're great dogs. Uh, too many salespeople have this master-servant relationship where the client asks for more and you just deliver it without always getting something back in return. So I think the big focus really on the fostering collaboration element of the book is see your client as an equal. Now, that doesn't mean you don't respect them, you don't you don't work hard for them to, to, to give success, but you don't have to... Um, bow and scrape to them all the time you, you, you need you need to make sure your time is as important as theirs and they're committing to actions along the way as part of the process but in, in a way I think what you're talking about respect I think it's actually you're respecting the client more because you're listening mm-hmm. to them and so that is showing that you're respecting their opinion and you know their feedback on what they want from you so yeah I think, yeah well I, I think I think the thing I took away from it and and you know we're in a, a B2C company, Obec <laughs> Books is is providing, and indeed Arch Publishing, for which, we, you know, this has been our sort of foundational project, if mm-hmm. you like. The, one of the things I took away from it is this this thing of two things, really. Uh, Steve, you, you've asked, you know, you've come up with, in a practical sense, you're encouraging sellers to ask questions, to get to the bottom of what a customer really needs and what their aim is at the end, end of the process. And Bryn, there's quite a lot, where you're talking about making sure that in those conversations, everyone knows that they they have to contribute to the next step, the next step, so that they're invested. They're not just being passive yeah. as customers. You call it the belay model in your your section, Bryn. So tell us, tell us what what was the, what's the thinking there and how that mental image works. Well, I can remember the exact moment that I came up with this idea because we. Um, Back in our, our Pareto days, we used to run London Assessment Days every Wednesday down um, down near Chiswick. We had an office there, and we used to about six o'clock de- decamp to the pub, and it was a lovely summer's day. And we were just sitting outside with a very nice chilled glass of white wine or two. And I, I guess, as Steve said, I was probably just uh, in in storytelling mode, and, and and all I could think of was I said. Has anybody 
recall that time when you had a meeting with a client and you thought, what a great meeting. And three weeks later, you, you're trying to get hold of that client. You're trying to email them, call them. They don't respond. And you never, ever have contact with them again. <laughs> Everybody went, yeah, I've had that meeting. <laughs> it was such a kind of universal thing. I said, what's going wrong there? There's something. And, and I was thinking of the analogy of climbing a mountain that sales is, you know, getting to the top of the mountain is really what we're aiming for. And, and what does a climber do? A climber hammers something into a rock. And I didn't really know the name of this. Mm. So I had to kind of Google it. And I realized it was a, a belay or a belay, as uh, probably the Americans <laughs> call it. Yeah. So the people were looking at me quite strangely, like, what the hell's he going on about? Anyway, over, I don't know, the last 10 years or so since I came up with it, uh, there's a few companies now talk about Brin's belays. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. No, it's sort of stuck, really, and it's all about how do we get the client at the end of every interaction or intervention to commit to the next action, and the more that more of that that they do, the more we can secure our place higher up that mountain or towards what we're trying to achieve. Mm. That's the principle. That's fascinating. You know you're famous when you've got a, a, a theory named after you. <laughs> <laughs> Steve's written most of the other models, may I say, but I'm, I'm claiming that one. That well, one we'll, is we'll yours, definitely. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about the process of, of when we got involved and, and where yeah. things got to now and, and actually getting the book out in, shortly. But just going back over something that you both said about interviewing potential salespeople and placing them and, and all that sort of 20,000 20, potential um, salespeople. Uh, I'm fascinated to know what characteristics you're looking for in that process. Is there a, is there a sort of, uh, you know, an ideal type or is it, can you see glints of gold in different personality types? Steve. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting i've done less than the recruitment side but obviously a lot more on the training and the assessment mm, yeah, side around yeah. that and, and, and obviously bring a lot from the sort of recruitment point of view mm. um i think the biggest thing and, and we talk a little bit about this is is this difference between sort of action zone and comfort zone yeah and i think that's what i'm really looking for when it when it when it boils down to it you look at people who go how many people are prepared to do the uncomfortable stuff Okay, and that might be, and that might just be as simple as you know picking up the phone rather than sending out an email because we can send out an email and that's really easy. But actually picking up the phone and having that conversation uh, is a little bit tougher. Um, or the people who are prepared to go, you know, there'll be times when you look and say, and it's back to the point you made earlier about having that equity in the relationship. And sometimes it means you've got to ask a very tough question of your client. And, but it's that that's going to really open up the doors and get them to move forward. And you can see those that go, okay, that's going to be an uncomfortable question to ask, but I see why I need to do it and I'm going to do it. And those that go, oh, I don't think they'd like that. Mm. <laughs> oh, I don't think my clients would like that. Well, it's not about them liking that. It's about asking that really tough question. Otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to skirt around the issue. You're not going to have that difficult conversation and you're going to end up, as Brim was saying before, without those belays where that client's ghosting you for the next three or four yeah. weeks. You go, well, what happened? And it's like, well, you know, because you didn't ask that really tough question about, you know, and it might be just as something as simple as, look, we're having this conversation. Are you genuinely interested in moving forward? Is, is this genuinely something you can see happen in your business or 
Is it not? And if it's not, that's okay. I can move on. But lots of people don't want to have that question uh, or ask that question because sometimes we're, we're a bit fearful of what the answer might be. So we'll move mm. away from it. That's that's the thing for me. So it's there's, there's a piece in there about action zone comfort. I, I'm just looking for people who go, yeah, all right, I get that. And it is uncomfortable, but I'm going to do it. It's a bit like when you go out with someone and you ask, do you want kids? <laughs> well, <laughs> you say no, you move on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I've heard anecdotally from guys, you know, this is about 10, 15 years ago. So we're talking about women who were approaching a point in the mid thirties, maybe late, you know, early forties. And they were, they were guys were out there on Tinder or whatever dating. And that was the first question. I remember uh, a very famous sports presenter um, said to me that he, his wife had, had, had broken up with him. And so he got out there back into the scene and he went through Gar- guardian soulmates and he met up with this uh, very, uh, you know, beautifully turned out Italian woman, um, very, you know, posh in Sloan Square. They met and she said, first question, have you had the snip? <laughs> <laughs> that was all. She was... A good seller then. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, you know, if 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 he couldn't provide the kids, then if she wasn't interested. That was that was it. And so mm-hmm. uh, that relationship didn't last more than about 10 minutes, I don't think. But... <laughs> it's wasted, is it? 10 minutes of your life? Yeah. I don't know how we've gone that, you know, as ever. With That's the pod- my fault. <laughs> yeah, the podcast comes down here. But I want to go back to you, Brim, because, you know, you're sitting across, you know, the interview panel uh, looking for potential. And the reason I ask this question is because I met some of the guys who've gone through your hands as trainers at your launch in Mayfair on on Wednesday and you know these guys are they were probably late 20s early 30s and all of them and I was sort of challenging them and saying you know this book's brilliant by the way and you know I'm sure you know you've heard some of these stories but you've got to read it and they and they were saying oh we're waiting for the audio version which is quite (laughs) flattering pressure yeah exactly but they were saying Bryn and Steve changed everything and we have changed our entire approach to everything. So, uh, and it was when I got them onto the subject of selling, suddenly the the sort of the joviality went away. It became, they were really focused. I was really interested, struck by that. Mm. So that's a credit to you guys. But, you know, going back to that recruitment side of thing, can you see that? Is that what you're probing for? Someone who can laser focus in on the sale? Yeah, I definitely think. Uh, focus is important I think there's a misnomer attached to what a good salesperson looks like from people outside of the industry yeah you always kind of say oh they've got the gift of the gab they've got a big personality they love to talk <laughs> now uh, it's interesting you you sort of use a kind of dating analogy because a, a business meeting is is a bit like a date really that if you went on a date and and um, you said you said to your friend, "How was your date?" And, and um, you said, "Oh well, they just talked the whole time." It probably wouldn't be a very good date. Yeah, it's exactly the same in sales. And there's far too many sellers who don't use the principle of two ears and one mouth and use them in the order. Um, and it doesn't. You don't have to be some massive extrovert, even though probably people would say I am. Um, somebody who's really good. Uh, wanting to know more about a business and really trying to get under the skin of it. As Steve says, not being frightened sometimes to ask quite challenging questions. And I think where sales has really moved over over the many years I've been in, in, involved in it is you're much more of a consultant these days. 
to help a business to move forward in the right direction? How can we actually do stuff that's going to impact your business? How can we make your business better? And also, how can we make your customer's business better? So not just your customer, but your customer's customer. Once you start to create those links and people um, with those kind of skill sets who are good at understanding and being able to then uh, match back a solution that really fits that problem and, 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 and achieves those business outcomes, that requires not just a big personality. It requires a whole a whole raft of skills that aren't, aren't developed overnight. And um, I think, you know, people go into sales roles, they get a couple of days of induction training and they're expected to go and become world beaters. That's not going to happen. No other profession in the world allows you loose in the marketplace without giving you loads and loads of training and guidance to get you there. So um, I think that's the key for me is, is you, you know, you never stop learning and you need to have a real structure to what you do, but you, it needs to be underpinned by an unshakable belief and a real desire to want to improve your customer's business those people who just want to make a sale they're never going to get a lot of repeat business Mm, you've got to be authentic yeah and that's critical I think people can see through you if they don't trust you if you lack credibility um it's not that difficult to see through somebody who's just trying to sell you something Mm. well it perhaps brings us around to the I mean this bizarre sort of conversation <laughs> in the sense that you know you are our clients and uh we have sold to you. I had and, to pitch to you. Yeah. I, I do confess <laughs> I was a little nervous. Now this this is something that is perhaps you know something that isn't really you know Rebecca's natural um sphere really. So you know you can't get a seller sort of thing. But nonetheless we've we <laughs> This this I what you're saying, then. well this this relationship's been a year now creative relationship between you know when you yep. first started editing it's coming up to a year yeah it was spring wasn't it last year so. what what I'm interested in is guys I mean you'd had your developmental edit by this point but when Rebecca got the manuscript she remembers it being sort of ninety thousand words at that point was it something like that was it I can't I honestly can't remember it how many probably was a lot it was big. one one of your requirements was to tighten it up a bit yeah to, yeah. Because someone had said that you know that it's a bit on the long side or something, so that was one of the things in my head when I was reading it. Right. So let's. I mean, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Now, Ooh, so, okay. When, so I mean, you know, you've worked in nonfiction a lot. A yeah. lot of it's academic. Yes. You're faced with a business book for the first time. Uh, of this sort. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What was your approach? What was your thinking when you when you saw that? And 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 in terms of just relating it back to what we're talking about, which is this discovery process of asking the right questions of of your clients. Um did you do that? Um not initially what with the editing side of things because that is a very specific request from you two. You wanted it edited. It had a development edit. So you wanted a sort of a structural copy edit yeah. to um sort of polish it almost. So I knew what you wanted. So I didn't really ask that many questions at that stage. It was when you said, now we want to turn it into a book. That was when I had absorbed things I'd learned from your book (laughs) in my, I wrote you a long email (laughs) and I broke it all down into, with with some questions as well as what what are you looking to get out of publishing your book? Where are your customers? That sort of thing. So yes, I did. And so, 
as the recipients of that, uh, you know, that, that that email and and that input, uh, Bryn, what 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 was your thinking when you've received that? And in fact, it's really a question to both of you, but let's start with you, Bryn. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why we've enjoyed um, this sort of past year working with you is we want we don't we 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 want honesty. We want somebody to tell us if we think something's too long or or the style. I think there's probably only a couple of things we push back on that you'd said. Yeah, now we want yeah to you're very it. good, yeah. clients. Um, but, but most times we're like, okay, we get it. Um, we, I think the world's always about um, looking um, to find experts to do things that you don't do as well as, uh, as, well as what you do on a day-to-day basis. And uh, what's been great about this experience for us is we knew the very little about publishing and we'd been kind of ruminating about how we're going to get this book to market and everything else and much more um succinctly and uh, in a a much better organized way we've just kind of thrown the issue at you i don't think you quite realized we wanted we wanted you to do everything like (laughs) just just make it happen for us and um and 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 that's been great because it's just taken the hassle out of it. We we can get on with our day job. And it, it's very similar to when you think about why you bring somebody into to your business um, if you're looking to buy something. You, 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 do, you go through a very similar process and exercise. And I um, can't remember who it was now. It was one of the sort of gurus like an Anthony Robbins or uh, Tom Peters who once said, he said, he's talking to a client and this client said, I believe you could and probably should outsource everything that you aren't specialist in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and what about you, Steve? I mean, you know, uh, clearly uh, a lot of your contribution was around this sort of putting the framework in. And uh, I mean, I, I'm interested to know, Rebecca, when mm. you were working on that framework, you know, how that, that side of things worked in the edit. Oh, uh, in the edit? Um well, I mean, I, I did make a lot of suggestions. So I, I read it, first of all, I read it once all the way through and edited it, did a traditional edit on it and lots of suggestions and questions as well. Because sometimes I thought as a reader, because I think I read it, I've read a lot of uh, marketing business books for our company. Mm. And so I was reading it as a reader, wanting to learn more about the subject. And so when I didn't understand something, even if someone who is reading your book may understand it. I would question it just in case, you know, some, mm. some of the terminology you did explain, you know, actually, no, this is. <laughs> but I suppose my point is, Steve, you know, when you get an edit back, cause I've had bits of editing yeah. stuff. It, the initial reaction for most people is, well, cause you've done your best. You've done your best. You've done, you think you've got it to, you know, pretty good. And you want you, what you're looking for. Perhaps some people think is a bit of praise here and there, but, I mean, what you're actually getting is a lot of things, challenges. What you want, and, and, and this, this is actually fundamental to the whole idea of transformational selling. Well, yeah, yeah, what you want is a bit of praise. What you need is someone who's going to tell you the tough stuff that you didn't want to hear, yeah. but sit back and reflect. And, and that's kind of exactly the same way. It, it works exactly. As Brim was saying, you bring the expert in, you know, and I think we talk about this in the book, you know, you don't go and see the doctor and say, can you prescribe this to me? You say, here's my symptoms, and the doctor yeah. says, let me do the prescriptions. I'll tell you what you need. You know, we don't go to our accountant or do this and do that. And our accountant says, no, no, no. You know, 
My job is to get you doing this, put that, keep you legal, do all the right things. I'll tell you what, you know, the best things are. And I'll probably give you some options. I'll say, we could do it this way. And here's the pros and cons. That's what you're looking for. That's why you bring an expert in. Um, And that's really where, you know, we saw selling going. But so I, I guess we have to be, we have to be on the receiving end, act like the clients that we want people to sell it in exactly the same way. But actually, it was really good because all the edits we had, you know, we had the first developmental edit that came back and said, really positive, but you guys have got a lot of work to do because you've got to decide what type of book this is. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit mixed because you've written two. So, uh, and that was... Um, I, I remember Bryn and I sitting down going, it was both brilliant and devastating at the same time in terms of we went, it's so right and it's brilliant and we can see a vision where we've got to go to. We just got, oh my God, there's so much more work to do. Um, and obviously when Rebecca went through it, you know, what was great is, uh, you know, all practically, all, I think there was one or two bits we went, do you know what? I quite like that. I'm just going to leave it and do that. But most of what came back, I was like, okay. It's coming from, this is an expert telling us we should do this. An expert saying we should probably put it in this particular way. Um, and actually, even that bit, and you were saying, Rebecca, you're coming back going, this piece of terminology, I, I don't understand this. And our automatic thing was, well, yeah, but if you're in sales, you'd understand. And then suddenly we went, hmm, maybe we're making too many assumptions here. And actually, if you're asking the question going, I'm not quite getting this, we've got to go back and go, is this genuine? And it just made us reflect and challenge our own thinking a little bit around, well, actually, are we being a bit too insular with with our language? And do we have to make it a bit more inclusive so that, um, you know, we're making too many assumptions about what our audience already knows and the fact that, you know, we talk about these things every day, but even our audience who are in sales may be not using this terminology. So actually, every time you asked a question and said, I don't know this term or I don't know what it is. It made us really stop and reflect and go, that's a really good point because that, that's really what you need. You need someone who's going to open you up to the blind spots that you don't have or you, you're not aware of. So that, that was really valuable for us. But yeah, back to your point, Adrian. Um, no, we didn't take, you know, actually we got quite good at not getting offended by it <laughs> yeah. uh, because we both realized we, we thought it was good we knew it could be better and that's that's one that you guys yeah i think that's key isn't it because i think Mm. as as a writer whether you're fiction or non-fiction it's knowing that you can always be better yeah well may i say as the narrator of the of the the body of the book if you like um i took a great deal from it and i think that you have and this is something i was saying to you know your um attendees on wednesday that what you've managed to do collaboratively but principally you guys is to create an accessible book that has so many things that any business could take from mm. it, but at the same time is very focused on on that core selling business to business element. But it is so approachable as well. And I think that some of the feedback you've had is is fantastic. And I, I, before we do this interview, I will mention what Jem Daduku put on his uh, LinkedIn, which was spectacular. Mm. So in the introduction, mm. we, we shall talk about that. But gentlemen, it is approaching the time uh. for uh, ah, yes. the random question. I have one more serious question about the book, first of all, before we get to the random question, which is, you've done it now. You've got your book out there. How does it feel to actually have that in your hands? And what has the feedback been like so far? So, Bryn, how, how did that feel to, to be out there with piles of books? You know? <laughs> Uh, yeah it felt great actually I think when you've 
when you've sort of ticked a real bucket list item in your life, and it's always been mm. one for me over many years, I've written articles and uh, had things published in magazines over the years and stuff like that, but a book is a whole other ball game. So, um, uh, and, and the first thing I did, and this sounds terrible, uh, uh, is I, I read it twice. <laughs> I was in Spain and I'd taken the book with me and I was like, I just need to read it to make sure it's okay. And, and it was that feeling after reading it, thinking if I was a reader, I think I would enjoy this. Yeah, that's, that's that, good. That feeling itself was great. It just sort of solidified all the effort and hours and many hours that we put into it. Uh, but to see other people's reactions, particularly you mentioned somebody like Jem and Andy Bounds has written a forward guru mm. in our industry mm. and, and was more than happy without a minute's thought to write the forward and um, said he thought it was beautifully written. He's sent us lovely LinkedIn posts and emails since then saying, I think what you've done is great. Jem saying, saying, and he's read many books and is an author himself saying, you know, it's the best sales book I've ever read. I mean, mm. you know, I don't think these are people who would deliberately blow smoke. So no. when they're fellow professionals means a heck of a lot. Even more for us is the fact that if salespeople start to read it, as as, as, as we, we, we know they're going to be doing over the next few weeks, and we start to see not only reviews, but how they're using it. I did a presentation to about 50 salespeople last week, and their head of training said, we're already using some of these concepts. The talk you gave, which was all about the book, has gone down really well. We're all already using them practically in our in our day-to-day work. That's that's the sort of acid test for us as to how it takes root. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because you don't just want them to read it, you want them to use it, don't you? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And how about how to book? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think the one bit that sticks in my mind was actually Thursday morning after the launch and Bryn and I were making our way back to the station to head back up north for our, our Thursday launch. And it was a lovely sunny morning and we're walking through. And I think, you know, because coming up to the launch, we'd just been hoping that it'd been a success, hoping that people would come and hoping people would love the book. And then we'd seen already the post that Jem had put and, you know, and, and just... And I'm just walking through the sunshine and we're stopping for breakfast and I just went and it's just suddenly hit me when... I'm living the life of an author right now. It's like I'm strolling through London and we stopped for a nice breakfast. And this is this is how I always imagined being a successful author would be. It would be walks in the sunshine. <laughs> I mean, you know, and leisurely talking about things and creating ideas that I would put down on paper later on in the day and stuff. So that that was the moment it really felt real for me. Wow. I love that. <laughs> that, that, that yeah. We all dream of that, yeah. Bottle that yeah. moment. Bottle that moment. Right. Yeah. Let's let's, let's bring, this, bring this whole thing grinding to a halt. Uh, uh, and uh, we'll ask the question that, uh, you know, the challenging question. That, yeah. Uh, it used to be asked lots of questions. Yeah. So this, this is it. So this, this is the real this test. This is the ultimate, ultimate <laughs> question in British podcasting. It is Rebecca's random question. Right, so I've actually got Bryn to thank for this question because when you came up to uh, Staffordshire to record your anecdotes, you recommended a book to me. Now, when people recommend a book, I often buy them. And it's this book here, which I'm showing, but the people who are listening can't see it. It's called Sensational, A New Story of Our Senses. It's brilliant, so thank you. Right, and my question comes from this book. 
So I, there's a chapter about uh, hearing, and I came across a word called misophonia. Now, misophonia is when you actually cannot stand a sound. It's so bad, you can't hear it, you can't stand it. So my question is to you, what is the worst, most obnoxious sound in your opinion and why? Steve first. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to go with this one. I think this is because I'm getting a little bit older and I'm getting much, much grumpier. Um, But I I spend a lot of time on public transport and I I love going on the train and just reading a book or getting on some work and whatever. Um, and I think there's two sounds that really annoy me when I'm on the train. Um, uh, the first one is just someone sniffing constantly yeah. and you get that. Thought it kind of, and it's just like, oh, God. that's the first one. And the second one is someone who's listening to music through headphones and I'm trying to work away and all I can hear is. Yeah, that would be it. That, and that will spoil my journey, basically, having those two things. Absolutely. Good sound. Yeah. Oh, I see, you know, I agree with you. Oh, that's in bad sound. Second one. Yeah. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, especially the way you did it then. Yeah. Oh. It's perfect. And, and Bryn. Well, if I stayed on the same theme of Steve there, mine is people who conduct conversations on trains very loudly in business um, so that everyone can hear how important they are when I'm just trying to get on my laptop and do some work. There's a guy sitting opposite me the other day who must have been on the phone for an hour and a half telling him about how he was going to do this deal with the client, what a great sales guy he was, how he didn't really need his boss to give him any ideas. I mean, I was tempted to just, you know, pass a book over to to the next (laughs) carriage. You could see see everybody kind of grating and um, his voice was sort of getting louder and louder um and you know because we're british nobody goes over and says please shut up which you know one of these days i'm sure i will do but that's one um interestingly um uh i remember um the uh the vuvuzelas that were in south Af- uh, south africa at the world cup i once went to um, a presentation on marketing and said what was the best seller um, at uh, the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, and everybody went vuvuzelas, um, and um, uh, the answer was no. It was cotton wool that people <laughs> wanted their ears to stop the vuvuzelas. So I thought that was pretty clever. Yeah, that's very well put. Very well put. How about you? Do you have a sound that you? Well, can't there's stand? two. I mean, we just had it during the podcast, which is when my microphone cable oh, started yeah. rattling, and I'll have to throw it away and get another one. So that's that's not good. Uh, the other one is the voice of the woman who does the Vodafone adverts at the moment. It. Oh, it you know, the, the volume on the comes down. As as something comes about on. modern British advertising where the, you have this burst of vapid energy from a, a younger <laughs> voiceover person across the UK. That kind of approach. I can't stand it. The, the really fast um, advertising thing crammed into a radio adverts particularly. Mm. Can't bear it. I just can't. I mean, this fake you know useful energy thing to sell stuff just isn't delivering for me you know and you know and then of course i'm having done quite a few of these things myself you have to do the other terms and conditions are yeah. that kind of kind of stuff at the end i mean i you know basically yeah most radio adverts drive me nuts and and when it spills into tv it's even worse but you know 
the best adverts are the ones that just have the minimum number of words and just convey it. And that also the other one, if it's not sound, it's a visual thing. The Lloyd's Bank advert, all the black horses running around the place. Can't bear it. Honestly, <laughs> give me a break. I think we've stirred a hornet's nest here, Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, Looks you have. Like you have. Oh, it's you. You're all rattling. Oh, I'm rattling. Well, do you want to know what my sound is? Yeah, go on. So my, mine's quite boring, I think, in comparison. It's old men clearing their throat and spitting. Johnny, just oh. release your grip mm. a bit. Right. So yes. Yeah, just hold the, hold the microphone, not the if, pig. If my so it's old men been, clearing if, their throat and spitting. Yeah. That's us. My wife has been on this interview. She clearly <laughs> suffers from whatever that condition is because she's got ultra-sensitive hearing and even, you know, I could be two rooms away and she'd say, stop doing that. <laughs> you know, but, but anything that you've just mentioned, if we're out in a bar or a restaurant, she's like, we need to go and sit somewhere else. I'm like, yeah. what, why? It's that, that person three tables away. Can't hear, <laughs> can't hear them grunting. Yeah, wow. anything like that. And she's, you know, it's, it's, it is a, almost a kind of condition, but um, I, I'm kind of glad I don't have that. I, I'm fairly oblivious generally to most sounds, but not somebody braying over the phone on a two-hour train journey. No. Yeah, yeah I, I, I love this. You know, it reminds me of um, Alan Partridge Christmas special when he's talking about and he's walking down a cloister in Nor- Norwich going, 350k or we take it to Sky, that kind of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, no yeah. commodities. well listen gentlemen it has been an absolute pleasure to speak to you both again i mean obviously we saw each other this week but it's been a pleasure to work with you as well uh for for both of us and we're so grateful for you stepping in at this last minute to come talk to us but i think people will take a great deal from this i've got to ask one more question if i may are we going to get a b2c book the business to customer book having had this experience of doing this i know it's your expertise in b2b but it feels to me that there's another book in you guys it's a bit early for that. I think they said <laughs> they need to bask in their glory I first. Know, I know. After, Steve, after Steve Redgrave won his fourth um, Olympic gold, he said, "If you see any, any me anywhere near a boat, you can shoot me." And I feel a bit like that about writing another book right now. But but uh, uh, that might change in a few months. Yeah, never he, say he, never. You'd go in and win another gold medal after that. So I, I think it's more likely, and Steve's already got ideas, which is worrying. <laughs> But it's perhaps more likely we might write one around sales leadership. Right. Okay. That's our other area of expertise. We're not experts in the B2C market. Um, so I don't think that would be appropriate. But we do work with a lot of sales managers and leaders. And there's a huge kind of absence of coaching in, in businesses that is so needed on the on to complement sales training that that's something I think there's a real gap in the market for. Fair play. There you go. Fair so play. it sounds like you've got a little bit of a gem of a plan. Well, we're waiting for that project. Right. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And all the best with Transformational Selling, which is out now. Great. Thank Brilliant. You. Thank you. Always great fun to spend some time with Bryn and Steve, I have to say. And uh, just this is a, a sort of flash review from one of their contemporaries, who's also a big sales trainer. Uh, a guy called Jem Duduku. Now, he's also an author. He's written a couple of novels, and he's written a whole load of history books as well. That's his sideline. <laughs> um, and he describes this book, Transformational Selling, as the best sales book he'd, he's ever read. And he was only a third of the way through. I don't know if it tails off well, the second Well, the story thirds, goes but... that he bought a copy at the launch in London, the one you went to. He went home, and he mm. went to bed, and he started reading. 
and he couldn't put it down, yeah. which is what we love to hear as publishers. But Absolutely. For that you, to be of a, a business book is even better, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, especially if you're in that field. But I think it is. It is. I have said this, and I'm saying this to, to us blue in the face uh, at the launch in London on Wednesday, that genuinely this is a crossover book where anybody could pick it up and get something from it without having to be in the sales yes. side of things. I um, think it's one of those rare business books that doesn't doesn't disappear into its own sort of um, mythology. Exactly. And, it and doesn't just say, we did this and we are now millionaires. Or it, it's not preachy in any way. It's, no, it's, it's so relatable. And I got a lot out of it when I was editing mm. it, even though, like you say, we're mostly B2C, as it's called, business to customer. But we are also business to business because we also have to persuade retail to stock our book so that is a business to business transaction isn't it so it is relevant and i did learn an an awful lot from their book so i think it is wider than um its original remit um and the anecdotes are brilliant Uh, it's worth reading just for that yeah Uh, brin naked in finland (laughs) (laughs) we'll leave it there we'll leave it there thank you so much to them for joining us on the show this week and our guest next week is Our guest next week is, in fact, we accidentally announced him a couple of weeks ago, which was totally my fault, but he is really coming on this following week, and that is um, Nick Edmonds, who is a GP turned crime writer. Wow. You'd think that GPs didn't have time to do anything else, you know, judging by the sort of... uh, It's quite a funny story, isn't it? So we sat down to do the podcast. uh, You'd sent him the link, and he didn't turn up. So I sent him an I've email. I've got a feeling he's a retired GP. So in <laughs> fairness, in fairness, he has got time to write. Yes, that. he has got time. Um, but yeah. So okay. we sent him a link and we sat here with the headphones on, the microphones already. He didn't appear. So I sent him a quick message and he replied with a photo of Berlin and said, I'm in Berlin. And he <laughs> this, was. I'm not supposed to be doing the podcast today. <laughs> no, fair enough. Fair enough. Our mistake. And uh, we apologise for that. My we mistake. Speak- well, okay. <laughs> Look, I'm, we, we work as a collective. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, I may have cursed you when we were sat here for 45 minutes waiting for somebody who was in Berlin <laughs> on the wrong week. But that's, that's, that's by the by. Uh, we move on. We move on into the week to come. And, uh, well, at the end of the week, we've got Easter holidays with kids back in our... Oh, we better get buying rent. eggs, haven't I? Yeah. So that's that's fast approaching. And, uh, well, look, I'm, I'm almost through, uh, literally, you know, within sort of uh, whenever you get this podcast, I should be just about finishing the fourth of five Roman legionary epics that I've been recording for WF House Limited, which is uh, I when I started when I got the offer, it was fantastic. You know, you know, not going to knock it, um, but it was pretty daunting, wasn't it? But I think it's proven two things. First of all, I found my stamina for doing the, the audio books, but the benefit of having the studio and having invested in some new software and and hardware that makes everything essentially go into the computer in a in a a, to a quality level that doesn't mean i have to edit too much Mm. has made a huge difference absolutely but boy i mean i you could probably hear it in my voice i'm a bit rough now i did four four long chapters today and i've got another one to go and uh, there isn't much left at the end of each day, is there? No, by the evening, while you're doing these books, you're, you're a bit of a zombie sat in the chair. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Which I is am. fair enough, you know, and I try not to talk to you too much because I don't want to hurt your voice. But, um, yeah, it's been it's been quite good. And from a personal uh, perspective, it's me- meant that I've got lots of work done because it's been quiet. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> you know, I'm joking. Yeah, right. 
I'm sure you are. Okay, on that bombshell, we'll leave you for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to go to our website, www.hobeck.net, for details of our Hobeck books and our uh, wonderful crime fiction uh, authors. Brilliant, and uh, we look forward to seeing you there. But uh, also, we'd like to thank you for listening to us on the podcast, and please subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts from. It means a great deal to us. So for myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. We wish you a wonderful and... Creative. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. 